1: By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
0: Now, John, there's been a lot of talk about you potentially fighting as a heavyweight, defending your light heavyweight title, becoming a two division champ. What are your thoughts now? What would you like to do next?
1: Man, I know there's a guy who's been calling himself Champ Champ. (laughs) I mean, what guy just gives up his belt because somebody else made it home? Daddy's home, DC. Prove to the fans you're a Champ Champ. Come get a taste. I'm here. Get your belt back. He'll be waiting right here. Hello everybody, welcome to the UFC 232 post show. I am John Pollock with you for however long it says on this file that we are going to be chatting about this card, which took place on Saturday night from Inglewood, California. And if you had been busy over the holiday season and just been planning that I'm going to watch the Jones Gustafson fight after Christmas, and then you tuned in tonight, wait a minute, this card was supposed to be in Las Vegas. Well, a lot happened this past week, and here to make sense of all of it, my two good pals, phil Chertok, who joins us live hello phil. hi hi i'm uh, happy to be here does it sound more important when i say that you're joining us live as opposed to any other option that you could be joining me by <laughs>
0: well it would be hard to get an instant reaction if i was coming to you from tape delay so uh
1: ziggy uh, <laughs> ziggy is on a uh, four hour tape delay so <laughs> yeah. ziggy how are you
2: tonight i am great thank you for asking and uh congratulations on your one year of post-wrestling
0: Oh, yes, yes, congratulations as well. Yeah, I, I, uh, thank you for beating me to the punch there, Ziggy. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it was a real honor to be part of the first year, uh, that you guys have been in business. And, uh, yeah, congratulations. It's been fantastic.
1: Well, thank you. I didn't know you guys were going to get me all teared up here at the beginning of it. I'm I'm sitting here with all these balloons and and cake and <laughs> I'm just glad that you two are here to join me. Because if not, I'd be talking in an empty room about this card by myself and that's just not good for long-term health, I don't think. Let's uh we're not going to go too crazy into all of this uh the John Jones story because I've written so much about it this week and you can catch up on all the details on the website. Uh It's a very, very complex story, and we could probably spend three hours talking about it this week. But I'm kind of curious from you two, because you two kind of following this, uh not as reporters, but just uh, following this from the outside over the past week. I'm kind of curious uh your conclusions, if you have any over the past week, and if you had any issues with this card going forward, starting with you, Phil.
0: Yeah, I... I went through a roller coaster of emotions this week. At first, it was, uh, I guess, just anger at John Jones and then the UFC for – John Jones for testing positive again and then the UFC for just sort of – I mean, not only just moving the card but in, at first, my opinion, just sanctioning the cheating and by continuing with the event. And then I, I, I really did a good job of taking a step back and I, I listened to, uh, the Jeff Nowitzki interview with Joe, uh, Joe Rogan and, and I did a good job of reading some of the analysis. And after all of that, I, I did come to the conclusion that it is a very plausible scenario that this is a uh, secondary positive test over something that John Jones had consumed previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not definitive. Uh, the The UFC broadcast tried to make it seem like it was definitive that he could not have taken something else. And, and I'm not prepared to draw that conclusion. It, it certainly seems plausible and perhaps even likely and while it was a tremendous event and i'm i'm thankful that i did get to see it i still feel the more prudent decision would have been to delay the event and, and do a little bit more analysis because let's say alexander gustafson got seriously injured in this competition and it turned out that john jones did indeed Take another banned substance. That would be horrible. So while it it, it was, it seems plausible now that he didn't re-ingest uh, this oral turinobol, it, it it's not so de- definitive that I, I I I'm okay with them rushing to approve this card in effectively two to three weeks based on sort of the timelines of the tests and the California. Uh, State Athletic Commission being informed of all of this.
1: I think that's really well put and I'm pretty much in line with with your thought process that I, I feel that you're right, this could be a plausible scenario and the way this was presented last weekend, I thought that now that we can look back at the week in hindsight, there was some deception along the way, how it was first announced, John passed all of his tests leading up to this this last one, on December the 9th. And then we find out later in the week, well, that was not exactly accurate. He had an abnormal reading on his August test, another one in September, so that was not exactly clear. Second, when the California State Athletic Commission were rushing through to allow John to fight on this card tonight, they were not given that information ahead of time, which, since Andy Foster has stated, who is the, uh, the uh, commissioner with the California State Athletic Commission, they very much... They would have appreciated that information, obviously, to have all that uh, at their forefront. So while I can buy that it may turn out that this is a plausible explanation, there was some deception along the way, and I feel that the responsible decision was kind of what was exercised by Nevada, that, hey, we are not saying that this guy has done anything wrong, but we need some time to, to look at this. This is not just something we are rubber stamping and allowing to happen in the state. And I think that was the responsible decision to make, that this card could have gone forward with Chris Cyborg and Amanda Nunez. It's not as big of a card with the loss of John Jones and Alexander Gustafson, obviously. But I think that that was the responsible decision to make. Um, And that's kind of how I have felt about this uh, most of the week. But nonetheless, it went ahead. And I, I think another big part of this is that A large amount of the fan base, I don't think they're necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty of learning about the M3 metabolite and going through all the science. But what they can reckon with is if they bought a plane ticket to go to Las Vegas or hotel accommodations, which they could very well be out of. They may have had their ticket refunded, but that's a big loss to have planned a vacation to go to the year-end card New Year's Eve week uh, in Las Vegas. And Ziggy, I want to ask you that if you found yourself in that position as a UFC fan that had planned to go with several of your friends and you had non-refundable airline tickets to Las Vegas and had booked a hotel for three nights in Vegas during a very busy week. And you found out this on the internet a week out that the UFC is hightailing and moving four hours away to LA. What you feel the fan base uh, would react with and you specifically.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely be really pissed off. Uh, I think that, like, when I first heard it happening, I thought it was like the craziest thing in the world, considering, um, you know, how far away the event was. Um, you know, I was on Twitter that day, and uh, Ariel Helwani actually kind of made a. I thought it was a funny point. Like, they should have totally done like a WrestleMania Two thing and just make the John Jones fight in California and everybody else in Vegas. And I, th- I thought it was funny at first, but I actually thought that that wouldn't have been the worst idea ever. But it was definitely a crazy week, especially with everything that's happened in the UFC uh, so far this year, with you know the bus attack as well as the um, the outcome of the McGregor fight uh, with Khabib. Uh, I don't know. Like, would you guys say this was crazier than those two? Like, where do you guys find like this with? Everything that's happened this year.
1: I don't think there's anything this year that I was more turned off by than the the bus attack and all the handling of that. I, I think that was just like that. That was a criminal activity that that we saw and was documented. And I just think everything attached to that really turned me off this year. I don't know, about you, Phil.
0: Uh, I wasn't as outraged by that. I mean, it was, it, you're correct. It was criminal and it was handled criminally. I mean, Conor McGregor was charged in that incident. This event, I suppose, shocked me in that it just happened so quickly and the logistics around moving an event and, and more so even just the disregard for the fans who were traveling to Las Vegas for this. Uh,
1: was was certainly upsetting. Uh, Which it's a it's a worthy question of is is a commission in place to ensure the the public's well being that if you are the California commission, it, should they have been playing is is the goal to be saving this fight uh, for the UFC or stating that no you have sold fourteen thousand tickets to this show in Las Vegas. We don't feel comfortable necessarily scooping this this show away from this from these fans. That are very well. There are people that were just out here um, th- that are going to lose money on this. Even if you are a diehard fan, that's going to reroute your travel plans to get to L.A. There's added cost here all around. And you know, th- to play devil's advocate to my own argument, it's not as though the public uh, protested at all. They sold this arena out tonight in days. It's uh, amazing. They sold this forum out. So it hardly was a message sent to the UFC that there was any problem with what they chose to do because the UFC was rewarded with a full arena on Saturday night.
2: I think that also the craziest thing about it is like, you know, obviously if it was anybody else than John Jones, you know, this wouldn't have been a factor. They would definitely just cancel that fight and like, you know, if this was if this was BJ Penn, no one would have cared. Like they would have been like, Okay, BJ, you're not fighting it and that's it, you know. I think and I think that's one of the things that kind of takes me off about everything about this as well, too, is that, you know, if it wasn't John Jones and, you know, like you've said it before, like, you know, if anybody has screwed up the most ever in like the worst possible way, it has been John Jones. So and I also don't like the way that John Jones has handled everything, too. Like he 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 comes off as really cocky and he's like, oh, like, you know, everybody's so quick to, you know persecute me and all that stuff but it's like dude like your history is terrible so i think if he was a lot more humble about it it wouldn't have been as bad at at least that's my opinion
1: i think there's many people that it's in order to accept this entire story and go through all the the specifics of it it does still require some benefit of the doubt. And I think people are very reluctant to provide that for John Jones because of his past history. Even if it turns out that he is, um, that he's acquitted in all of this and it's, and it's proven that this is a long lasting metabolite that he has not ingested since. But uh, I very much encourage people to go check out Mark Ramundi's piece at MMAfighting.com, And he reached out to many different experts. And I think it's really fascinating that, even a number of the the scientists and experts that Mark spoke to uh, weren't necessarily on the same page, and there were quite a number that either did not respond to his request, and one expert who just flat out said that they did not want to weigh in on this story. They did not want to touch this, and it's you know the, it, it is hardly a consistent uh, conclusion that even the experts have made on this. It is all shades of gray here. There is not a definitive black or white answer to many of these questions uh, in this field
0: i i think a key point to that is just the the rapid nature
1: of the analysis that's had to happen here in in yeah, a week this is, this is a seven day story that yes i, I think the, that nevada did the right thing that hey we're going to do a hearing on this and it's going to happen in the new year we we could rush this they apparently did tell the ufc we could rush and do this on thursday or friday um, but that was not going to, you know, leaving the event in limbo all week was not a great solution either. I, I think that there is just – this was such a, a rush job that you really did see the effects of that rushing
2: over the I think it also, it also didn't help that like literally like a couple days prior to that, like there was information that was said that, you know, John Jones didn't want to do the VADA testing because it was volunteer. And then literally this came out like just after that and it's just like, okay. So it just kind of made everything –
1: well, it's not I'm, voluntary anymore. It was part of his agreement to get this license in California. So yeah. he is doing. Uh, well,
2: he, he was forced to, but I, I mean, like prior to yes. the announcement, that's what like he 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 declined it, I and mean, it was it just looked bad on him. That's all.
1: Any other thoughts on this, Phil? Before we go to the fights,
0: I, I guess the only thought is is I'm just concerned that this is going to disappear now because the fight happened, the results are in. He's He's been licensed in the state of California. He still needs to get his license in the state of Nevada if he is to fight there. Uh, I, I'm just concerned that this – it's like, oh, it's, it's because he fought, because he was licensed. We're now just going to assume, oh, it definitely was this – uh, eighteen month metabolite or longer, and yeah, let's go on and and what happens in the next fight if he has this same metabolite does that automatically mean that he hasn't reingested something uh, there there really needs to be some good decision making about what it means to have these types of positive tests uh what these tests mean. And what the relationship between USADA, the UFC, and the commissions are going to be going forward because it it seems so haphazard and ad hoc, the decision-making, that from a sporting perspective, it's really hard to wrap your head around that. From an entertainment perspective, it's like it doesn't even matter. Okay, sure, we're just in the entertainment business, so who cares? but if this is truly about competition and the best in the world it's very important for the UFC and the commissions to get this sorted out
2: i yeah. think too like we i think we're also like you know we're we're discussing how it affects like mma and the events but like how does this affect other fighters too like other fighters who see this happen you know other fighters who have tested positive and you know, how, how it, about
1: the twenty-five other fighters who had yeah. to change everything this week, and now we're fighting in a state that requires you to pay uh, taxes on your income? Like this, cost all of these fighters, which the UFC has not countered uh, Dana White's "it is what it is" statement this week yes. to indicate that yeah. the fighters are on the hook for these added costs.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's just crazy. So, in that so,
0: so I'm going to be a little bit of a, a devil's advocate in this case. If you were to say that the event needed to be canceled because the main – the co-main event wasn't strong enough, then at least the fighters are still being given an opportunity to compete and still getting paid. So something You you don't think they could have gone ahead
1: with Chris Cyborg and Amanda Nunez headlining this show? I I think the card was
0: wrong. I I do believe that.
1: They've put a lot worse on pay-per-view. A lot I, worse this year in terms of a main event. I I believe that they could have, uh, but perhaps for
0: whatever reason, they don't feel they could have. Usually it's, it's not just a regular card. This is the new year's Eve card or the new year's Eve weekend card. And that is more often than not the strongest card of the year. So they felt that they needed it to be, you know, the best that it could be. And, uh, had they canceled that main event, then potentially the, they would have had to offer refunds on the whole event, even though it was still, in fact, they would have had to offer a uh, refund on the whole event because of, uh, Nevada law. Uh, if a main event does get canceled, the promoter must offer a refund. So, I'm not saying that I agree with that position, but I'm just playing a little bit of devil's advocate. I do think that the fighters are probably just happy to get paid in general, and they were happy to compete rather than the theoretical option of not competing at all and not getting paid.
1: I I will say this on, like, I, I do believe that, you know, they signed a bout agreement to fight Nevada. They should be expected to be, you know, the provisions of Nevada should be dictated there they're just being uprooted no fault of their own but I will say that this is just the latest example of what a lack of any kind of organization any association uh, provides these fighters to just be wide open to these kinds of practices that we always talk in professional wrestling that if a union were ever to happen It would need to happen the day of WrestleMania where that roster gets together and says, we are not going out there until we have some sort of association or union to form. And I'm curious if we look back on this week, like if ever there was a time for these 25 fighters to say enough is enough. We are in the midst of cutting weight, and we are now crossing state lines uh, because of this one guy. And we have to uproot our entire team that we have set up in Las Vegas. And we have to get down to California. And, like, where is that line that there is some pushback on? As we're about to enter this new television deal with ESPN where fighters will be sharing in a grand total of zero of that, of that revenue that is coming in. And, listen, that's on the fighters. It's We can complain about uh, lack of association all we want, but I don't have any optimism that that is ever going to happen. And at the end of the day, that comes down to the fighters that are not pursuing that kind of thing. And they are leaving lots on the table, in my opinion, when you look at other sports and what they share in with collective bargaining and having a percentage of big television contracts that UFC fighters don't enjoy.
0: They're definitely leaving a lot on the table, and they're also leaving themselves out of the ability to negotiate the terms of these drug tests, which is a little bit of a sort of counterpoint to this idea of can you more
1: imagine this in the NHL drug testing can you imagine well, the NHLPA signing off on our guys are going to have uh, there's going to be 4,400 tests administered next year. Uh, John Tavares is going to get a knock on his door at six in the morning. <laughs> um, you know, it's if you're in favor of, you know, a drug free sport, I mean, more testing is a positive, but th- there's a reason players associations don't sign off on that kind of thing because they, they don't want players to be, you know, inconvenienced to such a degree. There needs to be some form of negotiation and, collective agreement and it's just dictated here in in the UFC absolutely and
0: I agree in the sentiment that it's it's just not going to happen and and it's definitely not going to happen in the context that you described of like all the fighters gathering on like the biggest show of the year because let's theoretically presume and i hope you don't mind me speaking out of turn on the pro wrestling side which i'm not as informed of as both of you but on at wrestlemania the even though it's the biggest event of the year the uh talent you know it's it's a little bit like the, the another day at the office when fighters are preparing for a fight for combat that's really their only focus is just like I want to fight and and anything outside of thinking about fighting it it just does not want to be and making weight I does not want to be on their their mind so it's even even though I think it's a it's a it's far-fetched in pro wrestling it's even more far-fetched in the realm of MMA
1: all right let us get into this card Uh, Because we do have a a number of fights to go through. So uh, starting out, we're going to go back and just uh, work our way up, starting with the fight pass prelims that aired. Uh, Kicked off with Montel Jackson, the lone fighter on this card who missed weight. And again, as we just went over the circumstances for, uh, I I felt for this guy that he missed weight and was going to be fined 20% of his purse. But it looks like Brian Kelleher is going to return that 20% uh, to him. But Montel Jackson got the win over Brian Kelleher in the first round with a Darce choke. And, Phil, he was using his reach early, establishing a great jab, took him down, and then secured the Darce choke. 140 of the first round, and this took place at a catch weight of 137 pounds.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, it's it didn't surprise me that he missed weight because he looked a uh, full weight class bigger than uh Kelleher. And, uh, it, it was pretty dominant performance. He, he just seemed to have every aspect he w- he was better at and it was over fairly quickly. And, uh, uh, I think, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Kelleher announced that he was actually going to give back mm-hmm. that 20% of the purse. So, Good on him for doing that. And I think that was also because Kelleher himself had missed weight or pulled out of their previous fight. Something happened. I didn't get the details on that. So, uh, that was good, but it was actually a really good performance here. He, uh, Jackson, like the, the setup to the Dars came after he'd already hurt Kelleher with shots and sort of took him down. And it was a really good, uh, performance by, Uh, Jordan, sorry, did I say Jackson? And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him in the future. He showed a lot of potential here
1: in this event. Montel Jordan was, I'm (laughs) sure, very impressed with the performance by Montel Jackson.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Montel Jackson said, hey, Jordan, this is how I do it. (laughs) I
2: I was going to go there.
0: I, I I was thinking of how I could use that joke. Earlier in the night, and then I set
2: myself up for Do it. Do any
1: oh. of us know a second Montel Jackson, Montel Jackson, Montel Jordan
2: song? <laughs> no, I was totally going to go there, but John beat me to it. <laughs> uh,
1: Curtis Melender, uh defeated C.R. Baja Derzada. There's no other uh, similar name to C.R. Drazada that had any uh, pop hits in the mid-90s. Uh, <laughs> Melender got the unanimous decision victory on scores of 30-27, 29-28 twice. Uh, I thought the first and third were clear rounds for Melender. The second one, I guess you could argue Joe Rogan seemed to feel that he Melender lost the round because he was taken down for the second half, but I thought that the strikes that he produced in the first half of the second round, it was enough that I gave him all three rounds and then... Um, yeah, it was kind of a flat performance, Phil, from uh, Sierra Bahar Dazada, who I was expecting was just going to have, you know, this was going to be fireworks and a really good showcase for him. But Melender gets uh, a very impressive win here on the prelims against a quality welterweight.
0: Definitely. Melender looked very good. He had a wide variety of strikes. I did give CR the second round. It was a very close round. Uh, It wasn't just the takedown. He did land some strikes in that. CR really just ate a lot of shots in this fight and kept going forward. And it did look at one point in the second round that Melender was slowing down a little bit. And CR might be able to uh, use his pressure to actually take over the fight. But that ended in the third round when Melender really uh, was able to sort of regroup... Get his movement back because he kind of got flat footed a little bit in the second round and was trading a little bit too much. Whereas in the third round, he went back to just staying on the outside and countering him and landing from distance. And then at one point in the third round, he actually rocked CR and almost looked to finish the fight. Uh but yeah, he was it was very impressive by Melender and this was not his first impressive performance in the octagon. So, uh I think there's a lot of upside cuz CR is a very tough opponent even though this was an early fight on the card. He's been in there with some very tough competition and a uh, a clear victory is uh a good sign for uh, Melender going forward.
1: Did you hear his interview afterwards in the with the media backstage? I did- no I didn't, I didn't i only heard his uh post fight interview with joe rogan he did his media scrum backstage and he said that when bahar drazada was on his back he was whispering to him fuck america <laughs> and, this, and this upset malender greatly my goodness wow so, um i don't know about that that kind of a uh, trash talking it inspired malender uh then we had uh Following that, Uriah Hall, also on the fight pass for prelims, uh, defeated Bavon Lewis by knockout at a minute 32 of the third round. Uh, Certainly, the result does not tell the story of this fight because I was very impressed uh, with Bavon Lewis in the first two rounds. He was just out striking him uh, in both. Very comfortable. Just a great job of shutting Hall down who was just throwing singular shots and Lewis was throwing in heavy combinations first round he outstruck Hall 39 to nine. Second, it was uh close to that disparity as well just putting Hall against the fence and Hall just seemed uh very flat throughout these first two rounds and for a portion of the third he Ends up coming out, and then it's a right hook counter that Uriah Hall lands, and Lewis is done. He just flatlines on the mat and is down for several seconds. Um, he does not does not get up immediately, and Hall gets the knockout win, a hail mary shot that wins him the fight. And then after the fight, he ends up speaking to Joe Rogan and gives like the most passionate speech that he's fighting for his sister who's currently battling depression. He was almost in tears talking about this. It was a very emotional speech afterwards. You really felt great for this guy uh, afterwards uh, winning this. And this fight to me, it's, it's the story of Uriah Hall that just Uh, There's certain fights you expect him to win that he doesn't. There's others that you just see him like he's on his way to a loss, and then he pulls out a huge victory, and he improves now to 14-9, and Phil.
0: Yeah, I saw it almost exactly the same way that you saw it. Uh, Bevon Lewis came out incredibly aggressive early on and was landing huge shots uh, in the first round, and then he slowed a little bit. Uh, midway through the second round hall came out a little bit more aggressive himself to sort of catch up the distance. But Lewis was prepared for that landed great counters and going into the third, it looked like Lewis was running away with it. And then hall does what he does over and over again. He somehow pulls out this miracle knockout that it just came out of nowhere. It was a sneaky little right hook that was just timed perfectly as Lewis was coming in. And it was over before he even hit the ground. Um, I think it was Mark Goddard was the referee for that. He just stepped in immediately. And then, yeah, the the post-fight speech by Uriah Hall was really uh, inspiring and uh, thoughtful and did give you a lot of uh, it did make you feel good that he did get the win because of uh, what he was dealing with. With his, he he really mentioned uh, to summarize. He was just talking about the depression that his sister was facing and how other people in the world uh, were 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 going through depression and how he himself had to battle through tough losses and how his sister was there for him during those difficult times when he lost literally in front of the world on television and so uh it was a very emotional moment for him but yeah he somehow pulls out a win out of the you know his back pocket again your eye hall keeps his ufc life going
1: and then the feature bout on the fight pass prelims were a uh, it was a bantamweight fight between andre yule and nathaniel wood and both men had come in with uh Lengthy undefeated streaks Wood had won his last six And Ewell had won his last five fights And his last win uh, was over and Burrow So he was uh, had the momentum coming off of that one I thought the first round was fairly entertaining. Wood seemed to be uh, outlanding him, landing with rights and even a left near the end. Second round, Wood got a takedown into half guard and was very active on top. There was uh, like nothing from Ewell in this second round. And in the third, it was Wood with the body lock takedown and... There wasn't a whole lot of action happening and then Wood ended up taking his back and locked on a rear naked choke and submitted him uh, with 48 seconds left in the fight at 4-12 of round three. So Nathaniel Wood improves to 15-3 and with the win and Ewell suffers his first loss in his last six.
0: Nathaniel Wood, I thought he looked good in this fight. He was battling a serious reach and height disadvantage in this fight. Match, But he was able to close the distance. And then once he got the takedown, it was pretty clear who the dominant person was on the ground. And this is really the story of the fight. Ewell, in the stand-up, it was fairly competitive. I did still have Wood having the edge. But on the ground, Ewell really didn't have anything there. He didn't have any means of even attempting to escape from bottom. And when he did try to escape from bottom in the third round, he just gave up his back. So you you really need to get a little bit better skills on the ground if you're going to compete at the highest level of MMA, which is the UFC. Uh, But uh, Nathaniel Wood, I thought he, he fought a good, very smart, very patient fight. And he could have coasted to a decision win. He was clearly winning, and he went after a finish. So good on him. Let's see him against a little bit uh, better competition now.
1: And then we move on to the televised prelims. This was the last night of the UFC's deal with Fox with the FS1 prelims as the ESPN deal uh, goes into effect January the 1st. And what an end to the Fox era this was. We kick things off with Ryan Hall defeating B.J. Penn with a heel hook 246 of the first round. B.J. Penn is now 40 years of age looking for his first win since he defeated Matt Hughes in November of 2010. Uh, Ryan Hall has also had a pretty lengthy sabbatical. He hasn't fought in two years since he beat Gray Maynard. Uh, Penn has uh, last fought in June of last year. That was the Dennis Seaver loss. And I mean, first of all, physically, how did you think uh, B.J. looked, Phil? I thought BJ looked okay. Uh, he he I thought for 40, to... like this guy, like he was in shape. This was clearly not uh, some camp that he didn't take seriously. And he was tra- training at, at Nova Uniao in Brazil. So he did not stay in Hawaii. And, you know, he looked physically like someone that, like a 40-year-old in shape athlete would look. Yeah. Well, I, I think he looked even better
0: than how most 40-year-old athletes might look. And he, at moments in the this fight it looked like he may have an effective strategy if he could kind of separate himself from hall at the right moments uh it looked he looked it looked shaky because he was playing a little bit of feet games it looked like he was a little overconfident like uh uh reinhall went for his sort of signature uh takedown or at least I guess, sort of like leg hook early in the round and he was able to grab onto BJ's feet, but BJ was able to sort of circle his legs out and avoid Ryan Hall actually grabbing onto his leg too well. But I think that that was just like a sort of miscalculation on his part. He got a little bit overconfident. Obviously, BJ Penn, we're talking about one of the greatest uh, BJJ practitioners in MMA history, first American to ever win the world championships in BJJ. But why would you play that foot game with Ryan Hall? That's his specialty. Just avoid that entirely. And that ended up costing him later in the fight.
1: Yeah, and it saw uh, Hall come off the cage and just into this incredible Imanari roll and just locked on this heel hook and pen tapped instantly. This was one of the best submissions of the year. I think this might have squeaked in and will be some people's submission of 2018. Just a beautiful submission. The first time, BJ Penn has been submitted in his career and Ryan Hall, very respectful afterwards talking about BJ Penn being uh, one of his idols that he learned so much from. He would love to train with this guy, Uh, a very dejected look on BJ's face afterward. And they were also speculating if he had uh, injured himself just in the brief time that that uh, heel hook was applied. But I mean, just given how few times we see heel hooks um, succeed at this level of mixed martial arts, it's very difficult. uh, And You know, it's one thing in grappling tournaments. It's just a different arena in mixed martial arts. And not to say heel hooks never happen. But at this level uh, and this this deep one that was just instantly applied, I think that just showcases Ryan Hall and his elite, elite skill set here.
0: Yeah, he's going to be a dangerous opponent for literally... Every single person in the division because he has this technique that he's going to be better than every single other competitor at. So even even somebody as good as – I mean I, I don't – I mean – Watch what I say carefully, like even somebody as good as Habib Nurmagomedov, who's the best grappler in the division, who's the best fighter in the division, even he would have to be concerned with this one particular technique. So very impressive from Ryan Hall, and uh, hopefully we don't have to wait two years for him to fight again.
1: Yeah, maybe it'll be three this time. He's not uh, – th- doesn't, uh, doesn't exactly max out his activity card each year uh, when it f- comes to – I feel
0: I I don't, but I is that is that on him
1: I I'm
0: not so sure that's him saying I don't want to fight it's is it the UFC that doesn't want to book him because he makes people look bad and if I'm a competitor
1: do I even want to go against this guy like and if well I I'm sure that's a that's a big issue There's is a lot of guys that say you know this guy's an enormous risk. And who is he like is a win over like how many people are even like that's the worst to be in is that if you're someone that's super dangerous, that doesn't have much of a name where the the risk is not exactly worth the reward, which we'll also talk about in our next fight with uh, Piotr Jan. It's same thing, like a very dangerous opponent that when you don't have that name value, it's it's going to, I think, be difficult to find opponents for as well.
0: And not just the risk of potentially losing to an unnamed opponent, potentially losing and being injured because the heel yes. hook is a devastating injury that can end careers. So
1: people just don't want to even participate in that idea. Douglas Silva D'Andraj took on Piotr Jan in bantamweight action. Uh, a lot of people very high on Jan, who came into this one, a minus 315 favorite. Uh, he is uh, thus far 10-1 and in his career, 2-0 and since coming into the UFC. But uh, Douglas Silva D'Andraj, he's 33 years old with a record of 25-2 and with one no contest. I think he's had like four decisions in those uh, 28 fights. So uh, just to give you a sense of his style. Uh, They had a very entertaining first round, Uh, both men uh, landing early on, Jan got a takedown in the final minute of the round, I thought he got the first round, into the second we go, and Jan starts landing with this clean right, and he's going back and forth between stances, and then once he finds his range and rhythm, he set up for the standing guillotine and turned it into a takedown, where he moved to side control, and it was just Curtains for D'Andrages here. He was eating elbows. He was cut open and just got brutalized with hammer fists. The round ends and we come back from commercial. Uh, the fighter, uh, the corner for uh, D'Andrages, is not allowing him to continue into the third round. Can't say I disagree with that decision. And Piotr Jan wins by TKO five minutes of the second round. And I, I would say this was a guy that uh, put a lot of spotlight on himself in this bantamweight division coming out of this card
0: absolutely he looked tremendous the variety of strikes he had the variety of attack movement he had the way he was navigating around uh silva de he moving around his hips taking him down uh it it was a very impressive season performance for somebody who's very young and uh I didn't realize that this was his third fight in the UFC. I don't I he's flown under my radar. I guess he's been fighting on um some, lower on maybe some fight night cards, but it was very impressive and I I'm really looking forward to seeing him fight again against a higher level of competition. On a side note, is it just me or does uh Douglas Silva kind of look like Tommy Wiseau, the guy who made The Room movie? <laughs>
1: i guess now i've got that image in my head so that's a pretty good uh connection there all right (laughs) Uh, d by the way at the weigh-ins looked like he was auditioning for the role of skeletor in the next he-man remake he looked so drawn at those weigh-ins i mean this guy cuts a ton of weight to get to 135 pounds which i would imagine probably not the most optimal weight for this guy he has that Tiago, uh, not Tiago, uh, a Tibau. Uh just how this man gets to this weight class is beyond me kind of physique. Yeah, it, it, it looks like a very rough weight cut for him. He looks jacked. The next fight was historic because Ziggy tuned in at this point for yep. Kat Zingano and Megan Anderson. Are you still with us, Ziggy? I am. How how is this all sounding? How are how are me and Phil flowing here?
2: You're flowing really fine. So I'm about to ruin it, but it's all good.
1: No, not at all. Katzen Megan Anderson. This was a fight that was definitely under the radar on this card, but one that I had a lot of interest in because uh, you know the featherweight division is what it is that you get a solid win, you're a title contender in this division because yep. they have no challengers, and hence why Amanda Nunez was coming up for this card to challenge Chris Cyborg. Uh Gano after a Series of losses dating back years to Ronda Rousey, Juliana Pena, and Ketlin Vieta. She won over Marion Renault in her last fight, taking on Megan Anderson, who was the Invicta featherweight champion, and got decimated by Holly Holm in her UFC debut back in June. Uh, in this one, very bizarre ending. Anderson landed a kick to the head, and Katzengano just turned her back against the fence. And you cannot do this during a fight. You cannot just call a timeout. And the fighter is is encouraged you continue until the referee stops it so you could see there was some kind of problem we didn't know what the issue was anderson just continues and then mark goddard waves off the fight and we find out that Katzingano cannot open her right eye and they show this graphic replay of anderson throwing this kick and her toe goes right near it pretty much into the eye of Katzingano and joe rogan is immediately bringing up Mike Winklejohn, who lost his eye uh, because of a similar incident. And everyone is concerned that is Katsangano's eye going to be okay. And then later in the evening, Ariel Hawani had an update that it was a laceration to the eyelid and – she was, then, she was treated at the arena. She didn't even have to go to the hospital. So there was nothing uh, beyond, uh, you know, a, a nasty cut she had. And this is kind of similar to when Vitor Belfort defeated Randy Couture at yeah. UFC 46, only it was Vitor's glove that cut the eyelid of Randy Couture and led to the fight being stopped. And the title changed hands, and Vitor Belfort won the title. That was in 2004. Uh, But Megan Anderson wins the fight by TKO. And uh, first of all, let's go to Ziggy. Uh, Your thoughts on just uh, the ending of this? A very bizarre uh, way for this fight to end.
2: It was a very bizarre way uh, for the fight to end. And you know, like every time you think of Kat Zingano, like the the a lot of things that she had to overcome and everything. I think it's another one of those things where she just. You know, bad luck surrounds her. I mean, to think about it, she is the last person to beat Amanda Nunes. Like, that's crazy to think how far she's come from that and, you know, all the losses that she came from that. So, unfortunately, it was an unfortunate thing that happened to her. Hopefully, uh, you know, she comes back from it, but we'll see how it goes.
1: Phil, there's not a lot to break down in this fight beyond uh, the finish, but uh, any thoughts, A, on the fight, and B, where Megan Anderson now gets positioned at 145 pounds? uh well in regards to the fight i mean
0: it's thankfully it's just a laceration to her eyelid so no real damage to her eye, so no damage to her career
1: and even more importantly her just life uh you know I I, i was really disappointed that they didn't have an update on the broadcast at some point because i was very concerned that what if this woman has lost an eye or something and you know it's one thing that You know, you're following, you know, a Brett Okamoto or an Ariel Hawani. But I think that they could have just made mention of that on the broadcast at some point just to assure people that maybe we're not online and not following. I don't disagree.
0: But this is. The history of the UFC. They, they almost never give updates on fighters who have seri- who have any type of injury during a contest. They just sort of move on with the broadcast. It's like that was the past. Let's move on. So. It didn't surprise me, but I would like to see something like that. They used to have backstage reporters. I'd like to see them return to something like that. Maybe we'll see a change to the way they do coverage uh, now that they're going to ESPN. Uh, I do think in this fight, I wonder maybe if there was a sense of panic in Kat Zingano because – Oh, I, I'm
1: sure there was. She seemed very concerned. Yes. And she could, and they even several minutes after when they shot her, what, what, like the camera was on her, like her eye was not opening. So I'm sure she was fearing the worst.
0: Yes, yes. And, and all I mean by that is just, it wasn't, when you, when something happens to your eye, it's, and and I think Dominic Cruz mentioned something like this in the in the broadcast. You... Your instant reaction isn't it's just debilitating you you cannot even contemplate continuing on in the competition because it's just it's so fearful and I think that that even though because what we learned is that it was just was a laceration she probably could have continued. Like if 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 she had been told at that exact moment, it's just a laceration. I bet she would have been fine to open her eye and continue the fight. But because of the pain she was feeling and the fear of what could potentially be wrong, it was just over at that point.
1: Yeah, I would also say that. You know, I understand the, the absolutely zero fault on Megan Anderson. Like, you continue until the referee tells you it's over. But I would say when a fighter turns their back, that is to me the equivalent of tapping out. The fight's over. I don't think we need to continue with anything at that point. When the back is turned, I think that's the universal sign to the referee the fight's over, regardless of whatever is going on. Even if the referee is unsure of what's happening, that's it. It's done.
0: Uh, the caveat to that, I would say, though, is. I would like to know what Mark Goddard said in that moment because he did make some type of verbal statement almost as if he said the fight's not over and then Megan threw her shots. So uh, I I kind of disagree with actually what you're saying. Like it's it's really up to the referee – to stop the fight it's, well that's what i'm the, saying the, the, is the, that the, the, like
1: i'm not saying like the fighters can't do anything but to me that is cats stating i can no longer intelligently defend myself and that should be the universal sign to the referee i'm got gone. it, it's got over. it yes, yes yes
0: maybe 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 so okay so maybe mark godard should have stepped in earlier is what you're
1: saying yeah that potentially yeah that sounds about right like let's just say that there, there is a significant eye injury and then she takes a punch to the face uh, yes. To me it's like you turn your back that's to me the equivalent of a tap and the referee understands. The you wave it off, the fighter wins by TKO. Um anyway, that would be my only uh change to make there, but uh we we'll, we we'll, we will revisit the women's featherweight division because it may be a very different division um by the end of this card. And the final fight in the Fox era it all comes down to this. It started with Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos, and we bookended it with the heavyweights. Walt Harris and Andre Orlovsky in an awful, awful fight uh, that went three rounds. And first of all, Phil, what, what did you think of this fight here? Am I being too too harsh on this to begin with? You seem to be a more glass half full type of person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you know, I I do think you may be being a little too harsh on this fight. I'm not <laughs> going to sit here and tell you that this was some tremendous fight, but th- it had a fair level of drama to it, and it was
1: competitive. Uh, the the bon- drama was how a judge scored this 30-27. <laughs>
2: yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Like, yeah, he had that- the first round, but that's about it.
0: Well, I mean the rounds were
2: close enough that if you –
0: if somebody said it was 29-28 Arlovsky, it wouldn't like upset me. I did score it 29-28 for Harris in this fight and I was amazed at the shots that Arlovsky was able to take in this fight. I mean he's been knocked out brutally in his career and he continues to fight – And I thought he was going to be finished at several – well, not several points. There's only like one or two times. Uh, But he was able to hang in there. But you're correct. It wasn't the most exciting fight. Uh, But I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the card was pretty exciting up to this point. There was a lot of drama and this fight just didn't have that level of action in it. I'm not going to make a case that this is fight of the year or anything like that. But it's not the worst fight I've ever seen. I mean, this isn't Nganou versus uh, Derek, uh, uh, Derek Lewis or, yeah. or anything, right? Nice. Or even, I mean, even Andre Orlovsky himself has been in some worse
1: fights than this. So does anyone realize this was not only Andrei Orlovsky's 28th UFC fight. This was his fourth fight this year alone. Yeah. That's that's incredible. Yeah, he's he's pretty well. I think he's actually been in uh, well, some other him the fights. UFC,
2: they called him the a <laughs> UFC
1: staple, right? So I'm pretty sure every one of his fights this year went the distance as well. So you're talking about this guy going 12 rounds this year.
0: Well, it looks like he's been in some other rounds outside of UFC events because his nose was some.
1: No, That's he said the during the week time. he's fine. <laughs> he had no injury. He said going in I'm fine. My nose, uh, this is how my nose is.
2: Did he want, break it? Did he break it last fight though? Because I remember on one of his last fights when he got punched in the face, like it totally smashed his nose in. I thought that was from the last fight. His nose like
1: looks like he played chicken with a refrigerator. And like, it was just, it looked smashed as he went into this fight. So I don't know what he did to this nose. Uh, the crowd was very restless throughout this fight. Um, you know, you get, there were some close rounds here. I I don't know how you can go 30, 27 for Andre Lossky. That was probably the most suspect card of the entire night, but Walt Harris wins by split decision. He improves to 12 and seven. And for Andre Lossky, this would be his third loss in a row. Um, he did beat Stefan Struve at the beginning of this year, but then lost to Taitu Ivasa and Shamil Abdurrahimov. So, Ander Arlovsky has a propensity of going on these long losing streaks, and then he turns it around at some point. So, we will see what 2019 holds for him, but I don't see this guy stepping away from fighting, as long as the UFC is willing to promote him. I don't either. I mean, he's not getting dusted in these fights. No, he's, like, his chin is, you know, that was always the knock on this guy, but... Like when was the last time Andre Arlovsky was knocked out? He's routinely now just going decisions and and losing them.
0: I, I'm I'm gonna look up his record right now. I want to see. I've got an idea for a fight for him. So yeah, he, he yeah. Oh, but I mean, he's lost. The, I mean, he's, no,
2: he's lost a lot. He's lost. Nagarni was the I last mean, time he got knocked he's, out. He's too.
0: And eight in his last ten, so that that's pretty. Same, brutal. same as Car-
1: same as Carlos Condit after tonight, they're both two and eight in oh the last goodness. ten. That's unbelievable for Condit. That's crazy.
0: I mean, I just don't know who he can really fight in the uh, heavyweight division. It, it's a pretty thin division, but that also means that because it's thin, he can stick around. So, I I,
1: I mean, I definitely don't see him going anywhere. Then we moved on to the pay-per-view portion and it kicked off with Chad Mendez and Alexander Volkanovsky. This was a, I I thought this was a very interesting fight on paper because this was going to tell us where is Alexander Volkanovsky. He's 18 and one coming into this fight and uh, coming off wins over Jeremy Kennedy and Darren Elkins, he's five and zero in the UFC. He's had a very quiet campaign since coming in in 2016. Uh, Chad Mendes, of course, he had a two-year suspension. Uh, returned earlier this year to knock out Miles Jury. So we would find out uh, would the jury be out on chad mendez and his status in this fight uh first round mendez is coming at him with a flurry while after circling around volkanovsky is using his jab which would prove to be effective as he started piling them up uh, mendez did get a takedown but volkanovsky was up right away then in the second this was a very entertaining round mendez dropped him with a left after setting it up with a right hand volkanovsky then comes back with one of his own and mendez takes him down Volkanovski is up, continues with the jab and Mendez's face is looking like a mess at this point. Mendez continued to get takedowns, but Volkanovski was able to escape and then landed these big elbows to Mendez against the fence and lands his right hand that drops Mendez. His legs just gave out on him and Volkanovski got the TKO victory four fourteen 14 of the second round. He improves to 19 and one huge win for Alexander Volkanovski. And there were, there were several, Of these fighters on this card that we talked about already with a Piotr Jan that guys that were putting a big spotlight on themselves. And I think Volkanovsky would certainly be in that mix, Phil.
0: Absolutely. Going into this card, this was actually my... This was the fight that I was looking forward to the most. I had been following Volkanovski uh, through his UFC career. He looked tremendous. His technique looked on point. His cardio and pace looked really good. In his last fight, he defeated Darren Elkins, who isn't the most technical fighter, but he's a fighter who never quits and has incredible pace and durability. And he, he won that decisively. And I was really on the fence about who I thought was going to win this fight. And Volkanovsky just looked so sharp. He, his technique was on point and he got, he got dropped at one point in the second round and, and managed to just weather that storm and Chad Mendez looked good but he just didn't have he just didn't have the total skill set and particularly Volkanovsky's ability to get up off of uh Chad Mendez takedowns was really impressive yeah, yeah. and so he's definitely cemented himself into the top 5 of the division i hope they can actually get him on the uh UFC 234 card which is in melbourne uh, i know he's an aussie fighter or or uh from that region and so uh I would like to see him again in action. I know it was a, it was a tough fight so maybe that's it's too quick of a turnaround because that's in uh, early February, but I I'm really high on uh, Volkanovsky and I want to see him give give him a fight or two that's going to give him that title shot because he's looking tremendous right now.
1: I could see him getting someone of a Frankie Edgar level in his next fight. Like Chad Mendez is going to skyrocket him. Absolutely, yeah, Frankie
0: Edgar. That's that. That's a perfect pick. Uh, yeah. Right now, that division is is really exciting. Not a lot of marquee fighters, but
1: exceptional talent. Uh, Ziggy, any conclusions you made on Alexander Volkanovsky if you had not seen him before?
2: Yeah, he looked really impressive. Like it was kind of funny because they kind of like uh, mentioned it was like a mirror match. There was a few times where there there was quick exchanges. I'm like, who is who at this point? But um, I I do think that Mendes kind of beat himself too, but Vol- Volkanovski did a great job, and uh, <clears throat> you know just made sure that uh, he was on point and he he crushed him at the end, so he did a good job.
1: Uh, light heavyweight, it's always a division that they are looking for contenders in, and Iller Latifi has had. Quite the run at light heavyweight. He had this loss in the midst of his last six fights where he lost to Ryan Bader, but he's won five of six uh, coming into this fight with uh, Corey Anderson, who was coming off uh, a pair of wins earlier this year over Patrick Cummins and Glover Teixeira, which was a very good outing for him. Uh, I thought this was a closer fight than kind of the the stats detailed here. I thought that Latifi took the first round. He landed this huge uh, leg kick and then stunned Anderson with a left hand and Anderson started to get his right hand going, but it wasn't till near the end of the round. Anderson then came alive in the second big round for him. Latifi is just swinging wildly, but not landing it, just wasting a lot of energy. And he had clearly slowed here and Anderson kind of just picked them apart and was starting to work on the body. And then we get to the third round and the stats showed at the end, like Anderson definitely outlanded him. And it seemed to be like, it was just his jabs piling up a lot, but, Latifi landed this big shot off of the break and then partially landed with this uh, spin kick to the head, and I was certainly in the minority because I saw people's scorecards afterwards, but I gave the third to Latifi, so I had it 29-28 for Latifi, but I definitely know that most scored this, as did all three judges for Corey Anderson, 29-28. Is that what you had, Phil?
0: Yeah, I, I had it 2928. I had him winning rounds 2 and 3. Uh the second round it looked like he was was really going to dominate the third because Ilir Latifi looked really really tired. I mean, he was desperately uh gasping for air, but he was able to recover A little bit in the third and and fire some big shots, but he just never could land. And the, the constant failed takedowns really just took the wind out of his sails. Ziggy. Uh, how did you
1: score this fight?
2: Uh, I also scored it 29-28 uh, tw- uh, for Anderson. Um, I actually thought Latifi at the end of the first round I actually started to look really tired. Um, I I, I, I kind of saw like his breathing being a lot heavier near the end, so I feel like that's when he started losing it. And then second round, that's when Anderson took over. And uh, I thought he won the third round as well.
1: Michael Chiesa was moving up in weight to 170 pounds and drew Carlos Condit in this fight. Condit has lost his last four fights dating back to uh, that war with Robbie Lawler in January, 2016 followed that up losses to Damian Maya, Neil Magny and Alex Cowboy Oliveira in April of this past year. Chiesa had missed weight in his last outing against Anthony Pettis and made the decision he was going to come up in welterweight. I thought that this weight class Certainly agreed with him before this fight even started. He looked so much better here at one hundred and seventy pounds, and he was bigger than Carlos Condit, which tells you that this guy was probably doing ungodly things to his body to get down to hundred and fifty five pounds. I mean, this was um, yeah, this just to me was a sign of you know what some of these guys are doing to themselves because Chiesa looked like you know a very comfortable welterweight here
0: Definitely. I mean, he, he, yeah, he's a massive, massive guy. And that sort of makes you think think about Kevin Lee, who looked just yeah, as big yeah. as, uh, as Shazia and, and sort of dominated him. So, and he's had his struggles making weight, uh, at 155 as well. Yeah. The size discrepancy was, was like he was significantly, I thought he was bigger than
1: Carlos Condit, fairly significantly. I'm curious how you guys scored the first round, because I I think you can make an argument either way. Like, it was Chiesa that certainly was in control of the majority of the round, and his takedowns, he was able to take down Condit at will. He had three takedowns in this first round, but wasn't able to do a lot with them. And if you're looking at who had the most, um, the the chance to end the fight most, it was Condit with that armbar that looked so deep and he just seemed to lose control of the arm, and Kiesa escaped. But that looked very deep, and then later went for a heel hook and was just throwing elbows at uh, Kiesa. But how did you score the first round, Ziggy? Uh,
2: I actually gave it to Kiesa uh, in the first round, I thought. Um, uh, yeah, like, the arm bar was deep, but he, he still managed to get out of it. It was a very close round. Like, um, uh, you know, Kiesa, I thought, started off well, and then near the end, it was... Um, uh, condit that was uh doing his thing but uh i i still gave it to kiesa at that point yeah I, I wouldn't argue uh whoever
1: you gave this round to phil did you see it for kiesa or for condit in the first
0: i, I saw for kiesa that there it was really just that arm bar that was sort of the 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 really tense moment for uh for condit i mean he was able to create some other scrambles but even in that moment where he was definitely deep on the armbar you could kind of just see the way that Kiesa was uh reacting he was very calm and he was very aware of the situation so it it even though it was deep it didn't look like it was he was he was all that worried about the the submission happening quickly so i did score it for kiesa
1: Well, then we all agreed. Anyway, into the second round we go. (laughs) Chiesa got another takedown to start the round, and then he was able to get this one arm Kimura as he was putting his weight on Condit, and Condit just furiously tapped out. This was 56 seconds into the second round. Uh, They were very concerned if Carlos Condit had injured himself, uh, but Michael Chiesa just looked like the happiest man in the forum on Saturday night. He gets his 14th win, uh, 8th in the UFC, and said that this is his new weight class, and Said he wants to fight Neil Magny next. But, uh, Phil, I've always been impressed with Michael Chiesa. I've always thought he's an underrated lightweight that can hang with a lot of quality guys in a super deep division. And coming up in welterweight, um, you know, the first test, he passed it with flying colors. Yes, I agree. I think he is very
0: underrated. I think that's sort of what's happened with people who've come off of the Ultimate Fighter because the quality of that show has gone down. That when somebody wins that it, it, it they don't seem they're not as highly regarded as they used to be, and he did have a couple of tough losses, but he was fighting Kevin Lee, who's a top five lightweight, and he and he lost to the former champion Anthony Pettis. So it, I, it's you know no shame in that, and now we can tell he really wasn't fighting at his natural weight class. So here he is at welterweight. I, I'm I'm really curious to see uh what he can do next. He seemed to indicate that Neil is the guy for him. So yeah, let's do that and, and let's make that fight happen. It's kind of a favorable matchup for him, but Neil Magney's definitely gonna be the better strikers. So
1: but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think there's a lot of fresh opponents for him at 170 pounds, so it's a a good move for him. And I I think that the only thing holding back a lot lot of guys from doing the same thing is it's daunting when you look at the jump is 15 pounds in, in weight as opposed to... Five pounds um, that you know we've discussed in the past, but it's uh, mentally for a lot of guys that's a big, big hurdle to to jump up a weight class when you're talking about 15 pounds. But I'm sure Michael Chiesa, like, could you have imagined this guy cutting that weight this this week too, where you had all the the traveling that was added to things that I mean it would have been a nightmare for the guy. All right, let's get into these two title fights: Amanda Nunez and Chris Cyborg Justino for the women's featherweight title. This fight begins, and it goes from 0 to a 100 in seconds. Cyborg is just wailing, throwing these huge overhand rights, and this crowd is losing their minds as this fight is just escalating instantly in front of their eyes. Cyborg is charging in like a maniac, and just throwing at Nunez, who just is watching all of this like she's Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, (laughs) and then stuns Cyborg with one shot. Cyborg goes down to a knee, and the whole place is just buzzing. They cannot believe Nunez has landed a shot on Cyborg. Cyborg gets up. She eats these four shots, goes down to a knee again, gets up again like the Terminator, and then Nunez finishes her with this right hand that drops her for good, this place explodes. This was maybe the most entertaining 51 second fight I have ever seen. I thought this was awesome. It was a big upset victory. I will not even pretend to say that I picked Nunez to win this fight. And man, this place went nuts. In the same arena that Michael Bisping did the same thing to Luke Rockhold. But man, I, I thought this it could not have been a more exciting fight, Phil. It was, it was fantastic. I did
0: not pick Nunez to win either. I was, Joe Rogan commented about how big Cyborg was going into the fight, but Nunez looked similar in size. Like I didn't think she looked outsized and clearly she was not outskilled because she got the tremendous finish. The, the fight was just absolute fireworks from beginning to end. Tremendous precision striking by amanda nunez she positions herself now as probably what's going to be widely considered as the greatest female fighter of all time and really i think this was the time we we sort of discussed like why she wasn't more popular and why she didn't have more notoriety after big win a a huge win over ronda rousey who was such a star and I think this is going to do it for her. I think now we're going to finally see Amanda Nunez come to the forefront as a star, not just in this sport, but outside of the sport. Because there's a lot of things about her story that a lot of people, I think, can identify with. And it was really exciting. And also from the perspective that... St- the 145-pound division is a bit of a liability, and Cyborg's contract
1: is up. This is kind of the best-case scenario for the UFC. Well, let me ask you, Ziggy, first uh, your thoughts on the fight, and I also want to ask about what you feel is the future of the women's featherweight division.
2: Uh, that's a very good question. Like the, the problem with, I think, even with a lot of the women MMA is that the competition is very thin, right? So even, like, you know, it was hard for them to find an opponent for Cyborg. Now, Nunes has beaten Cyborg. So, technically, Nunes is, well, she is higher than Cyborg, so it's going to be even harder for them to find her an opponent. And uh, like Phil said, I think the best thing right now for the UFC uh, happened because if, you know, Cyborg obviously wanted to leave, but now, you know, she'll probably want to get that uh, return fight and therefore will have to sign with the UFC for the next fight. So, I think uh you know I you know I I I thought Cyborg was going to win but I was like if anyone has a chance of taking down Cyborg it would be Nunes and uh well we saw what happened and like I thought that the crowd was uh like you know like you said John they were they were amazing on that like you know everybody was up on their feet and everything and um I think the last time we kind of saw that for a women's fight was probably when Holly Holm defeated Ronda Rousey uh, yeah.
1: I guess yeah, Phil. I I want to get your thoughts too on the the future of this division. And do you see Nunez defending this title? Because obviously, yes, there's the rematch with Cyborg. Beyond that, there's Megan Anderson. That's the extent of this division. And I'm just curious: can one woman really handle holding both belts, or is she going to have to choose one? Because featherweight, there's just you, you still have that lack of depth beyond just the other two people that are in this division.
0: I, I so I I think this this does a couple of things. So first, uh, just talking about the crowd and the excitement that the crowd had for this fight, and going back a little bit earlier to how we were talking about the the potentiality of them uh, promoting the co-main event to the main event because of you know delaying the John Jones fight. Chris Cyborg is a star in this sport and she's developed a following over the years and people get excited to see her fight and because she has such an amazing style as well as that long history. So I think that was a big dynamic in this fight and I think Chris Cyborg will continue to be a star and that's what's elevated Nunez uh, going forward. I think Realistically, though, Amanda Nunez defending the 145 pound title isn't terribly realistic. Megan Anderson is really the only other 145 pounder out there. Uh, I I think now maybe you can finally do Megan Anderson versus Cyborg because maybe, I mean, it's, it sounded in the, in the past that Megan Anderson has voided that fight. But maybe now she'll have the confidence because we've finally seen a vulnerability potentially in Cyborg. And then Amanda Nunez, even though uh, Bantamweight is is Bantamweight – she's, she's got is, no challengers there either, really. Well, I, I do disagree with that a little bit in the sense that I don't believe that she has fought Holly Holm. And that is a potential fight that they can do. And I know Holly Holm is, is scheduled to fight Aspen Lad, uh, at some point coming up. I, I don't know the exact date. I'd have to look it up, but I, I do think that that is a fight that you can do. And you know, there's a name I'm going to bring up about a female fighter, a champion now, the 125 pound champion who has a history against Emmanuel Nunez and has had competitive fights against her. And that's, uh, Valentina Shevchenko. And I do think that that's a potential fight that you can do again as well. So I think Amanda Nunez winning this belt is good for women's MMA because it creates some interesting matchups and it it promotes women's MMA and her as a star. But the women's one forty five pound division outside of Cyborg versus a man uh, Megan Anderson and that person getting the one forty five pound shot, th- there really isn't anything out there. And I'm not I'm not as convinced as Ziggy that Cyborg is just going to sign with the UFC because she wants a rematch. Cyborg could have all sorts of potential options if she goes to Japan or. I mean, she has a long history with Scott Coker. I don't think it's a given that
2: she she comes back. I know she's a competitor, and I'm sure. No, she's I mean, it, it gives them more. A loss. It gives them more of a chance because, like before, they probably had absolutely none in the sense that, like, uh, you know how outspoken she was against the UFC. This gives them at least more uh, fuel to potentially sign her back again.
1: Well, so, if if nothing else, you have created someone else for the women's featherweight division beyond it being the Chris Cyborg division. I mean, now you have, you have created somebody new that I wouldn't be quick to strip her of one title. I think that neither division is so clogged up that you can't entertain the idea of Amanda Nunez that you can market her as this double champion that can go back and forth and, and I think could defend each title at least once a year that I I think that that could be a big, Appeal um, to her as well, and the Holly Holm fight you could do it either weight class as well. So I, you I don't do even have options. think you
0: need. I don't even think you need to have her fight at any given interval. Like at least at one forty five, I think she goes back to one thirty five, continues to fight there, and then if a fight materializes sure. in a year, eighteen months, even then, do the one forty five pound. It's not like it's not like they're putting a division on hold
1: because there's no division there. No, Megan Anderson has won one fight, yeah. and Chris Cyborg would be you know your rematch. There's there's nobody in the queue that you are icing, so it's a, it's maybe, a unique set of circumstances. Maybe Jermaine Durand will want to reclaim. Oh
2: God.
0: The title that she <laughs> was stripped of unrightfully. Here's I'm, I'm, I'm
2: about, done with her. <laughs>
1: Maybe she will make her way uh, back into the mix.
2: Interesting note, Cyborg only lasted 3 seconds longer than Rousey did against Nunes.
1: Yeah, this went uh all of 51 yeah. seconds. We had both, both women's fights lasted a combined, like under 2 minutes combined with Megan Anderson's win and Amanda Nunez's victory. Well, that was the win. Uh very exciting fight. If you missed this, it's it's 51 seconds of action with uh, an unbelievable finish, and I think with this win, you could argue that Amanda Nunez becomes the female fighter of the year, may have stolen knockout of the year away, and you could certainly start making the case of whether she is the greatest female fighter of all time. Main event, John Jones and Alexander Gustafson for the vacant UFC light heavyweight title. We're not going to get into how that became the vacant title because that'll just give us a headache. But nonetheless, this was now for the championship. Fight begins. First of all, did any Ziggy? What did you make of John Jones' preparations backstage, where he was doing um,
2: <laughs> the helicopter spin?
1: Yeah, it was like he was auditioning for Titanic or something. I don't well, know. He was I also just, thought uh,
2: that the 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 choice of the walkout music was weird and really like that guy hasn't he doesn't know what humble is at all for sure and like for him to come out to like we are the champions as a walkout theme is weird and yeah it was the whole thing was weird but i i I didn't like it but whatever fight begins
1: uh first round jones knees him low early and the timeout is called mike Beltron was not putting up with any shit between these two he repeatedly gave warnings told them we're not doing any of that stuff tonight both of you watch your damn fingers he was like each- that all night though yeah mike Beltron was on point tonight uh each guy's attacking the body uh gustafson blocked a single leg takedown which was kind of the story of the first fight was uh, gustafson and his takedown defense uh, Jones was able, able to land a kick to the body at the end. Um, kind of a stationary round, I thought, for for both men. I'd I lean towards Jones in the first. Second round, Jones starts getting his kicks going, and he's attacking all different parts of the body. You can see that he's... Definitely getting more comfortable, but Gustafson also starting to land uh, later in the round. Jones connected with this big leg kick uh, that Gustafson registered, and the kicks keep piling up, and the round ended with Jones landing a spin kick that Gustafson definitely felt as he walked to his corner. Third round, Jones gets a big takedown, which was huge, and starts landing hel- elbows in half guard moves to side control and then tried to transition to the back and this is where he just started dropping shots on top of Gustafson from behind brutal ground and pound and mike beltron stops the fight at 2 minutes 2 seconds of the second round john jones once again is the ufc light heavyweight champion pretty tough to fault this performance i, I thought he was very effective in breaking down Gustafson and then getting the takedown, which was something he struggled with in the first fight. This was hardly the war of the first fight, but, man, I, I thought John Jones was very impressive in this fight. Uh, Ziggy, what were your thoughts on his performance?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, as much as i like to say I, I don't want to care about his fights anymore with all the drama, like, you know, as a MMA fan, like, he fought this fight perfectly. You know, he distanced himself really well. Um, you know, with those leg kicks and everything like that, he he made it look easy. And uh, what really impressed me was the way that when he was uh, attacking from the ground and from behind, like the how quick he popped up to start pounding him like really hard. Like that was super impressive. You don't see that a lot in, in a lot of fighters, but he his uh, his his fight IQ is just top notch.
1: Phil, um, you know this was a very different fight than, than the first one, but uh, what did you think of the strategy uh, of both men? I thought that the
0: strategy of Jones was really interesting. He came out in the first round and immediately looked for two takedowns via the knee tap, and Gustafson was able to defend those. And it almost, at first, like, I I almost got the impression that that frustrated John a little bit. But he was able to, as uh, Ziggy mentioned, he was able to manage the distance really well. He was able to say out of boxing distance and keep it at kicking distance and then when he went back to the corner uh greg jackson commented to him he's like don't force the takedown look for the takedown but you know just be relaxed with it and then in the third round when he went for he he changed to a double leg takedown and drop level uh, amazingly and and secured the takeout it was I was really impressed at how dominant he was from that position. He secured a half Nelson to just maintain control on Alexander Gustafson at that point, and uh, he finished him right away. He would not give him an inch of breathing room off uh, when he had his back. It was extremely, extremely impressive from John Jones in this fight. And it's sort of a reminder. Like, we always talk about his dynamic striking. But if you look at his career, when he takes guys to the mat, that's where he's even more dominant. He just seems to be at another level. Like, with the submissions that he's had and the ground and pound,
1: it's really incredible. And all the way back to the Brandon Vera fight. Just breaking that man's face. I mean, it was like John Jones and his top position is frightening. Um, yeah, and d- displayed it. And, you know, just his ability to, to pass uh, Gustafson, he did it at relative ease, going from half guard to side control and, and then the back. And, and Gustafson did not have a way out at all. And it was just violent strikes to to end the fight for John Jones I I came away very impressed with with his performance uh, didn't take much damage at all after the fight uh, he was asked what was next and he said essentially sure. he wants the third Daniel Cormier fight he said if you think you're a double champion come prove it I've got the title and that seems to be the fight he is angling for yeah there was uh,
0: it It sounded lo- and also in the pre-fight Uh, hype to this that um, somebody asked him I I think he was asked repeatedly about fighting Daniel Cormier again and he seemed insistent on it being at light heavyweight and the same way that uh, in the post-fight speech it was like you come and get this I I think he was implying you come and get the light heavyweight belt to be the the champ champ as he said but I don't think that's the fight. I think it's 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 at heavyweight. You got to do it at heavyweight because that's where Cormier is at his best and people want to see Jones' challenge. If Jones beats Cormier at light heavyweight and let's just say it's clean and it's a finish, it would no doubt be impressive because Cormier is amazing. But we've already seen that outside of the clean aspect to it. and But... We want to see this guy challenged to really show us that he's the greatest of all time. And, and I feel like the only way to really do that is to go up to heavyweight and take on Daniel Cormier there.
1: And financially, for someone that is going to profit off of how much a pay-per-view performs, you know, you have Daniel Cormier is it at light heavyweight. And then it's a big drop off like John Jones and Anthony Smith might be intriguing to some people, but that is not going to be a big selling fight. It's heavyweight where the John Jones drawing opponents are going to be found um, for for the future because yeah. Cormier, once he's out of the picture, which will be fairly soon, like if John Jones is looking for for big paydays, they're at heavyweight, not at light heavyweight.
0: Well, I mean he's already I mean, previously he tried to set up the Brock Lesnar fight. That was his last call out when he beat Cormier the first time. And it, it seemed like the UFC was working towards that fight prior to Jones's positive and second PEG positive test. Yeah. And uh and and then there I mean, let's say Cormier he defeats Cormier. But Velasquez beats Nganou. That's an amazing story of Cormier's teammate going against uh, John Jones. So I definitely agree that heavyweight is the place. And heavyweight is also the marquee division in fighting. It hasn't been so much in MMA, but certainly in boxing. That's where we've seen Mike Tyson uh, and uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, now we've ha- we just had Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury in an amazing fight. So I-, I think if if John Jones really wants to cement himself as the greatest of all time, which is still a possibility, despite all of the controversy that has plagued his career, it's it should be at heavyweight. Does Cormier a-
2: accept, though?
0: I think Cormier takes that for sure. I don't think he's, he's desperate for it, but, but yeah, it's a huge fight. And, and Cormier wants that. It, it, he's a competitor. It does not sit well with him. Even outside of the personal stuff, it does not sit well with him that
1: that's the only guy that's beat him. I would. I would say that that should be the fight that you aim for. And I think the realistic time to do it is International Fight Week. I don't see Jones uh, jumping up to heavyweight for March. I don't see Jones coming back in March regardless that quick. Um, And I think Cormier, if it's the Jones fight and it's at heavyweight, I think he postpones this retirement to have his one big send-off uh, July International Fight Week.
0: I mean Cormier could fight Brock Lesnar before then. Like maybe. I, I, I yeah. don't see why not. Because really does Cormier need to prepare like specially for Brock Lesnar? Like I mean and and like I'm not trying to crap on Brock Lesnar, like No, he, that's that's a fight he, you could do
1: in in March if if you yeah. can get Brock signed. Yeah, yeah, that's a big if. So the performance of the night bonuses went to Amanda Nunez and Ryan Hall. It was the kind of night where a one-arm Kimura did not warrant a performance of the night bonus. And fight of the night, Alexander Volkanovsky and Chad Mendes getting $50,000 bonuses. Love that. That that was UFC 232, a very entertaining card and some historical results as well uh, in the case of Amanda Nunez defeating Chris Cyborg and... When John Jones fights, there is always a gigantic spotlight on it. So we have gone very late here. I want to thank both Bill and Ziggy for joining me, as always. Uh, always fun to go through these cards with you guys. And thank you for staying up late to chat all of the happenings from uh, LA by way of Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: no problem. Thank you very much, John, for having us. And uh, again, th- uh, congratulations on a year of post wrestling. Uh it, it's been an honor to be part of the post wrestling world and I look forward to two thousand and nineteen and the post office growing. Uh, despite the reduction in snail mail and increase in electronic mail in the world,
1: but I do think that the post office to, is going to make gonna... a comeback, <laughs> Phil. We're, <laughs> <not> gonna... <laughs> We're bringing him back. We're bringing it back. Well, uh, and I want to thank both of you guys, uh, for being a big part of it as well and, uh, doing these shows, uh, providing your time. It's, uh, much appreciated on
2: this side. Uh, so everyone have a wonderful night. Ziggy, any final words? No, just, uh, Happy New Year's, everyone, ahead of time, and uh, have a great year. Good night, everyone.